Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. On the 11th of December, 1975, two police officers, Tony White and Stuart McKenzie, were sat in their police panda car on the side of a road in Mansfield, Nottinghamshire. They were observing the passing traffic, keeping a lookout for any drivers breaking the rules. They noticed a man behaving strangely on the pavement on the opposite side of the street. While it was dark and the officers could not see the man clearly, it looked as though this person was trying to hide his face when he noticed the police car. It soon dawned on Officers White and Mackenzie that they were close to the local sub-post office. Due to numerous armed robberies within the last three years, everyone in the force were aware to be on the lookout for anything suspicious within the vicinity of post offices. So the officers decided to call the man over to question him. At that moment, officers Tony White and Stuart McKenzie could never have guessed that they had just encountered Britain's most wanted man. You are listening to True Crime Britain. Join me, Rhiannon, each Wednesday as I tell the solved and unsolved stories of some of the most disturbing, mysterious and heartbreaking crimes committed throughout the United Kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode. As PC White asked if the stranger would mind telling them where he had been, the man replied, saying he was just going home from work. He told the officers his name was John Moxton and he lived in Chapel and Lefrif. PC Mackenzie had his eyes on his pocketbook as he wrote the details down. But before he even had time to finish, John shouted, Don't move. Any trick and you're dead. What the officers had thought would be a routine check had just turned into a hostage situation 
as the man now pointed a sawn-off shotgun at them. John ordered PC White to move into the back of the car while he settled into the passenger seat and pushed the gun into PC McKenzie's armpit, telling him to drive to Blidworth. This alarmed the officers, who thought that perhaps the gunman wanted to take them to Blidworth Woods, where he could shoot them and escape without any witnesses. To prevent that from happening, PC McKenzie decided to act. He turned the steering wheel violently and slammed the brakes, giving PC White an opportunity to grab the gun and push it away from his fellow officer before John even realised what was going on. During the struggle, the gun discharged up into the roof, grazing PC White's hand. Meanwhile, as the car was now stationary, PC McKenzie opened the door and threw himself out of the vehicle before moving to the passenger side and dragging John onto the pavement. But this man was far from giving up. He was extremely strong and fought so hard that even two officers were barely enough to hold him down. Fortunately, the wrestling took place in front of a local fish and chip shop and two men, Roy Morris and Keith Wood, ran from the queue to help. While Roy held down John's hands, PC McKenzie managed to snap on the handcuffs, but even that didn't stop him. As John continued to fight to break free, more people joined the struggle and eventually he was overpowered. Finally, John was dragged next to a metal railing at the side of a bus stop and was secured to the railings with handcuffs. After taking a few long breaths, PC McKenzie called the incident in while PC White carried out a body search where he made a frightening discovery near John's left hip. A large hunting knife. If he had been able to grab the weapon during the struggle, the aftermath could have been very ugly. PC White also found some shotgun cartridges and a sheath knife in John's left boot, in addition to gloves and a face mask. After his arrest, John refused to speak to anyone and did his best to prevent the investigators from taking his fingerprints, which suggested that John Moxton was not his real identity. Even the mugshot taken at the time proved useless, as John's face was left battered after the wrestling match with the bystanders. However, when a forensic team examined the items found in John's possession, they were able to lift several partial fingerprints, and those prints were quickly matched with those found at the scenes of crimes committed by a criminal who had terrorised North England for the last four years. The Black Panther to everyone's surprise, when Commander Morrison sat down with John and told him they had found matches to his prints, he began to talk and finally admitted his name was not really John Moxton, but Donald Nielsen. Born in Bradford, West Riding, Yorkshire, on the 1st of August 1936, Donald Nappy grew up in a working-class family. His father Gilbert had a job in the textile industry and his mother Phyllis was a homemaker. Not much has been said about Donald's early years, but life back then was not easy for the common people. 
and it appears that little Donald had it more rough than most. Donald was considered a bright child at school, but unfortunately, the boy did not exactly enjoy going. Donald's peers bullied him mercilessly just because of the family name, Nappy. Such a silly thing eventually led to young Donald becoming a loner and channeling his frustration by committing minor thefts. But it was when Donald's mother got sick that things really began to go downhill. Phyllis Nappy died of breast cancer in January 1947 at just 33 years old, leaving 10-year-old Donald to grow up faster than he should have. The boy's father was working long hours, having no time to look after Donald, who then began to rebel even more. Whenever he could, Donald skipped school and continued his petty thefts. Eventually, around a year after his mother's death, Donald was finally arrested for the first time after breaking into a shop. But due to his young age, he was let go and only given a police caution. By the age of 17, Donald had dropped out of school and began working a dead-end job within the building industry while partying on weekends and having no real direction in life. But when Donald turned 18 and was called up to perform his two-year national service with the King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry, the teenager found his calling. Somehow, under all the discipline and regimentation, Donald felt more at home than he had for a while. And of course, the boy that used to fight with his bullies at the playground enjoyed being a soldier. Donald eventually rose to the rank of Lance Corporal and served in Cyprus, Aden and Kenya during the Mau Mau uprising. Donald loved the army so much that he could have likely remained in the military for a full 22 years of service. But the thing is, he loved something else even more. In 1955, 19-year-old Donald married a woman named Irene Tate, who kept asking him to leave the army life behind and return to Bradford to settle down. Three years later, Donald finally agreed to do so and stepped back into the civilian world. Donald was no longer responsible just for himself, but he now had a wife to support and making enough money proved difficult. Eventually, Donald opened a carpenter's shop, having learned skills for the industry before his army years but the amount of money coming in was still way less than he'd have liked. More pressure was added as Irene found out she was pregnant and the couple purchased a small terraced house on Leeds Road so they could have a proper family home. Shortly after, Irene and Donald welcomed their daughter, Catherine, into the world in 1960. Donald decided to change the family name from Nappy to Nielsen for an obvious reason. He didn't want his daughter to go through the same torture at school that he had experienced as a child. There have been several versions of the story why Donald chose the name Nielsen. Some saying he seen it on the side of an ice cream van. Another theory is that Donald bought a small taxi business from a man named Nielsen. It was simply practical to use that name. So at this point, Donald had two firms, which he hoped would be enough to guarantee a comfortable lifestyle for him and his family. But the thing is, 
Donald Nielsen wasn't exactly a businessman, and he failed to make his firms profitable. While Donald struggled to make ends meet, he became more and more domineering and violent towards his wife and daughter. As Donald himself later said, he was the boss at home, and if things did not go his way, Irene and Catherine were to pay. Sometimes, Donald took his family to the Yorkshire Moors and made them dress up and play soldiers, while he played the tyrannical commander. Eventually, Donald realised that while he was not in the military anymore, he could still use his knowledge and training not just to play dress-up with his family, but to get some extra income. After some careful deliberation, Donald decided to become a career criminal who would focus on burglaring houses. And Donald did not take his new job lightly. He spent a lot of time searching for potential targets and planning military-style operations, using his experience in the carpentry industry and the army. Donald was familiar with construction work and different kinds of windows, and he was able to create a method that got him into any house. He used a bit and brace to drill through the window frame, and bent metal rods to disengage the latch inside. Simple, but effective. During the planning phase, Donald investigated the residents of the home and their schedules, and only made his move when he was sure the property was unoccupied. Donald didn't care if it was day or night when he began his operation, he was going in. Donald's methods proved very successful, and before long, he already had a list of victims in Bradford. Of course, a sudden increase in burglaries eventually caught the attention of the police. While the way Donald broke into the homes was far from unique, the investigators got the feeling that they had a single spree housebreaker on their hands. The way the crimes were committed, the MO gave an impression that this was not the work of an ordinary thief, but someone very organised. In fact, Donald was so good at covering his tracks that people eventually gave him the name the Phantom. It was like he vanished into thin air without a trace after each break-in. Donald knew very well that the authorities would begin to identify his MO, and for that reason, he began to adopt a different modus operandi every few weeks in an effort to throw the investigation off. At the rate Donald was hitting the local houses, it was impossible for him to continuously confuse the police, especially as he still gained entry to the homes using a bit and brace. Realising that he could not continue the burglaries forever and admitting the profits were not actually that good, Donald decided to up his criminal activities. While burgling a house in Chester, Donald had stumbled upon a cabinet full of firearms and ammunition. Excited, Donald took everything with him back home and began planning his next move, which would include a lot more money than anything he had ever done before. By this time... Donald had a specific operations room in the loft of his house, where he carefully prepared all his expeditions and stored his weapons and outfits. Donald liked dressing in military-style clothing and a balaclava mask, 
1967, Donald left his career as a housebreaker behind and started robbing sub-post offices, which he believed were perfect targets because of all the cash and low-level security. Donald had even considered bank robbery, but the risks as a loan operator were too high for his liking. But a small post office with a simpler alarm system appeared a smarter choice. In most cases, the post offices had only a panic button beneath the counter and some just had a telephone to alert the authorities. Of course, planning a sub-post office robbery was a much different process from a simple house burglary. From now on, Donald had to deal with people, and he was definitely not going to just walk into the office during broad daylight. Instead, Donald decided he would break into the sub-postmaster's home, located above the workplace at night. This way, he could wake up the residents and order the sub-postmaster to hand over the keys to the safe or open the safe themselves at gunpoint. After taking the money, Donald would then tie his victims before fleeing the scene. In Donald's envision, it would be clean and fast, as long as the people involved would do as he said. Donald understood that there was a possibility of something going wrong. He was ready to deal with violence if necessary. However, before his first robbery, Donald changed his mind after coming to the conclusion that it would be better if he just looked for the keys himself without waking up the sub-postmaster. Having people involved in the operation was a huge risk, and if it was any way possible, Donald preferred the idea of opening the safe and escaping without anyone noticing until morning. Still, Donald had to make sure that he would be able to get himself out of any situation, which is why he would arm himself with a .22 caliber pistol, a large hunting knife, and a homemade garret. At first, Donald's new career path left behind some scared or confused sub-postmasters depending on if they had woken up during the break-in or not. But slowly, as he felt the amount of cash taken was insufficient, Donald became increasingly embittered and more ruthless. In the early hours of the 10th of February, 1972, the owner of a small sub-post office in Haywood, Lancashire, Leslie Richardson, and his wife Hilda were asleep in bed. Although the couple had already heard about a man targeting post offices, the Richardsons weren't too concerned, as the attacks had taken place mainly in Yorkshire. But that night, at around 3.30am, Hilda suddenly woke up to a strange scratching noise. For a moment, Hilda listened, but in the end, she decided to go back to sleep, thinking nothing of it. Meanwhile, Donald Nielsen, who had broken into the home and found a key, attempted to open the safe downstairs. But to his frustration, Donald had taken the wrong key and was forced to return to the bedroom. But this time, Hilda, who had not yet gotten back to sleep, heard the footsteps. Too scared to look, Hilda awoke her husband, who immediately noticed an intruder in the shadows. Leslie didn't think twice. He jumped out of bed and attacked Donald 
while telling Hilda to run. In the midst of the struggle, the masked man pointed a sawn-off shotgun at Leslie and told him, with a fake West Indian accent, that the weapon was loaded. Leslie, however, did not let Donald threaten him, and instead he grabbed at the gun, which went off twice, blowing a hole in the ceiling. Leslie also managed to pull off Donald's mask before being kicked in the groin several times. While Leslie fell to the ground in agony, Donald escaped out of the back door and into the night. As Hilda had already called the police, several patrol cars arrived at the scene, narrowly missing Donald. Leslie and Hilda both provided the police with a description of the intruder. But unfortunately, their accounts were inaccurate, and the sketches made by the forensic artist proved unhelpful. Still, the most important thing was that the Richardsons had survived the attack. Not everyone was going to be as fortunate. Donald was very aware he had barely avoided being caught. He could not let something like that happen again. Over the following two years, the post office robberies continued, while the police were no closer to apprehending the perpetrator. Donald had learned from his mistake and used even more time planning and preparing for each crime. He had also begun to cut telephone lines of the properties to ensure his victims could not alarm authorities before he was gone. In addition, Donald swore to himself that if he ever faced an issue with a sub-postmaster, he would pull the trigger immediately. On the night of the 15th of February, 1974, Donald broke into another post office on the outskirts of Harrogate, New Yorkshire, after selecting the location as a possible target a few months earlier. The office was owned by Donald and Joanna Skepper, who the nightly intruder thought were deep in sleep by the time he entered their office. But as Donald carefully ascended the stairs, found his way to an upstairs bedroom and slowly opened the door, he was surprised to see the skeppers sitting on their bed, wide awake. For a brief moment, both parties froze as they stared at each other, before the sub-postmaster shouted, Let's get him! and attempted to jump out of the bed. But before he was able to do so, a loud sound tore through the air, followed by Joanna's scream. Her husband had been shot once in the chest and now lay heavily bleeding next to her while Donald fled the scene through a window without a single penny. Just when he made it back to his car, Donald heard the police sirens and knew he could not jump behind the wheel and speed off. So instead, playing it cool, Donald drove away as calmly and inconspicuously as possible. Meanwhile, the first responders to arrive at the sub-post office quickly knew that there was nothing to be done to save Donald Skepper's life. He became the first casualty related to the post office crime spree. But unfortunately, he would not be the last. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. While it was the utmost priority for the police to catch the killer before he could strike again, There was little to no progress in the case during the following months. The people of the area were expecting results after such a senseless and cold-blooded crime. But it seemed the post office bandit was always one, or even ten, steps ahead of the police. Donald was smart enough to keep a low profile after his first murder. But eventually, it was time for another robbery attempt. On the 6th of September, 1974, Donald targeted the sub-post office in Hyabeck Senden, near Accrington, Lancashire, which was run by Derek Astin and his wife Marion. That night, the couple had just gotten into bed and were ready to go to sleep when an intruder wearing black clothing and a mask suddenly appeared in their doorway. Once again, things did not go exactly as Donald had planned. Instead of freezing at the sight of a gun pointed at him, Donald jumped up and tried to tackle the masked intruder without thinking twice. A struggle ensued and woke up the Astin's two children. Marion tried desperately to assist her husband, passing him a vacuum cleaner to use as a weapon, but it was no match for a gun. The pistol went off, and Derek fell to the ground, while Donald made his escape through the back window. Derek was rushed to hospital, but unfortunately, he succumbed to his injuries soon after. Following her husband's death, Marion gave an interview to a local TV station, describing the killer by saying he was dressed all in black and was as quick as a panther. Marion's words stuck with the reporters, and so... From this point forward, the sub-post office bandit became known as the Black Panther. After the second casualty in the case, the police established an incident room in Accrington and began going through files of all unsolved robberies. Soon, they discovered 13 similar enough crimes that were believed to be committed by the same person, the Black Panther. It became very clear that this person was not just an occasional criminal, but someone who would not stop unless they were caught, and they didn't care how many people they killed in the process. Not wanting to lose any more of their employees, the post office offered a £5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the Black Panther. Soon after, Donald struck again. After another failed robbery, Donald was desperate for money. So on the evening of November the 11th, 1974, he targeted the sub-post office at Langley Green, Oldbury. This time, Donald didn't break in. 
After the last two fiascos, he had realized he needed to change his strategy. Instead, Donald simply knocked on the door. The owners of the office, Sidney Grayland and his wife, sub-postmistress Margaret, were just about to finish their day at around 6pm when they heard a sound on the back door. Perhaps thinking that a client was running a bit late to take care of some important business, Sydney went and opened the door and was confronted by a man in a black mask. A brief struggle ensued, during which Sydney squirted ammonia into the attacker's eyes. Outraged, Donald raised his gun and shot Sydney in the stomach before ripping off his now wet mask. While Sydney lay on the floor dying, Donald turned to Margaret and ordered her to hand over the key to the safe. But the poor postmistress was too shocked and scared to move. This infuriated Donald even more, who then violently attacked Margaret, beating her to the edge of unconsciousness before finally retrieving the key. While the Greylands lay motionless, Donald stole £800 from the safe, which is the equivalent of about £7,700 in today's money, before making his escape. A few hours later, at around 11pm, Two police officers were walking past the sub-post office and they got a feeling that something wasn't quite right. Even though the office should have been closed already, there was a light on inside. The officers decided to investigate and discovered the severely injured Margaret and her husband, who had already died from his injuries. Margaret was taken to hospital, where she lay unconscious for several days with a fractured skull. But eventually, she was able to physically recover from the attack. Unfortunately, despite seeing the Black Panther's face up close, Margaret was unable to describe him to the police. Following Sidney Grayland's murder and the brutal beating of his wife. The post office increased the reward for information leading to an arrest to £25,000. While the pressure on the police intensified, Donald decided once again to change his MO, and this time he would do something much more ambitious. Donald had grown frustrated with the poor return from the post office robberies, just like from the house break-ins before that. In addition, he had already needed to kill three people and had barely escaped during some of the attacks. The sub-post office robberies were simply not worth the risk. Instead, Donald wanted to do something big, something that would secure him financially for at least a year or two so that he didn't have to keep committing crimes every month. Back in 1972, Donald had read an interesting article about a man named George Whittle detailing how members of his family were in a dispute over his will. George had accumulated a fortune with his and his two brothers' coach and bus company. Upon his death in 1970, George left his money and assets worth £250,000, which is the equivalent of £3.6 million today, to his partner Dorothy and their two children, Ronald and Leslie. But there was someone else who wanted a share. Before meeting Dorothy, 
George had been married to a woman named Selena, and despite the fact that they had been separated for more than 30 years, she considered that some of her ex-husband's wealth belonged to her. After legal proceedings, Selena was granted £1,500 and £30 a week allowance. But while the dispute was the reason why the whole ordeal ended up in the news, it wasn't Selena who Donald was interested in. On the evening of the 13th of January 1975, Dorothy left the family home in Hiley, Shropshire, to visit friends. When she returned at 1.15am, Dorothy found her 17-year-old daughter Leslie sound asleep in her bed. Dorothy then took a sleeping pill and retired to her own room. Not even an hour had passed before a strange car pulled up and parked near the house. Donald Nielsen got out of the car wearing his usual attire and entered the Whittle family home via the attached garage. He then chose one of the four bedrooms, which happened to be Leslie's, and woke the girl up while pointing a gun at her. Terrified, Leslie followed Donald's orders. She quietly got out of bed put on a dressing gown and allowed the stranger to apply a surgical plaster over her mouth and tie her hands behind her back. Donald then directed the teenager out of the bedroom and down the stairs before they both disappeared into the night. The following morning, Dorothy went to her daughter's room after noticing she had not yet come down and would soon be late for college. But oddly, she found Leslie's bed empty, and she was nowhere else to be found in the house. Dorothy knew her daughter, and knew that she would never have gone out without letting her know. Dorothy then tried to call her son, Ronald, who lived on the other side of the village, but the phone wasn't working. Starting to panic, Dorothy drove to Ronald's house and soon returned with Ronald and his wife Gaynor, who had promised to help look for Leslie. As the three began to thoroughly search the family home, they discovered rolls of printed Dymo tape in a confectionery box in the living room, reading, quote, No police. £50,000 ransom to be ready to deliver this evening. Wait for telephone call at Swan Shopping Centre telephone box at 6pm to 1am. If no call, return the following evening. When you answer, give your name only and listen. You must follow instructions without argument from the time you answer. You are on a time limit. If police or tricks, death. 50,000, all in used notes. 25,000 in £1 notes and 25,000 in £5 notes. There will be no exchange. Only after 50,000 has been cleared will victim be released. Deliver 50,000 in white suitcase. Swan Shopping Centre. Kidderminster. Despite the kidnapper's warning, Ronald decided to contact the police before contacting the bank. After withdrawing the £50,000, the notes were copied at the police headquarters so they could be traced. But taking that money to the kidnapper proved unnecessarily difficult. Due to a series of police bungles, and other circumstances, Ronald missed the first call, and when he finally got the instructions from the kidnapper on two different occasions, he either arrived at the agreed spot too late, or Donald saw a police vehicle and abandoned the ransom drop. 
It was just mistake after mistake. All the while, Leslie Whittle lay alone in the drainage shaft of a nearby reservoir. Then, Donald broke into the old Freightliner terminal yard in Dudley, where he was planning to arrange yet another ransom drop, but came face to face with security guard Gerald Smith. As Gerald turned around to run for a phone, Donald shot him six times in the back before fleeing the scene on foot and leaving behind his stolen getaway car. Gerald was terribly injured, but still alive. He was taken to hospital, where he survived for another year before his body eventually shut down. As the police searched the car, they found ammunition for a .22 pistol, Leslie's slippers, plastic tape, and a cassette tape with her voice on it. On the recording, the teenager said, Mum, go on to the M6 North, Junction 10, and on to the A454 towards Walsall. Instructions are taped under the shelf of a telephone box. There's no need to worry, Mum. I'm okay. I got a bit wet, but I'm quite dry now. I'm treated very well, okay? But sadly, by the time the tape was found, it was too late to follow the instructions. And at around this time, to everyone's horror, the investigators matched the ammunition found inside the vehicle to the crimes of the Black Panther. And they already knew that this person was ready to kill, making every passing day less likely to find Leslie alive. Unfortunately, days went by without any signs of Leslie, before eventually a whole month had passed. It wasn't until police decided to search Bathpool Park again, which was one of the ransom drop locations, that there was finally a break in the case. On the morning of Friday, March the 7th, Detective Constable Philip Maskery headed out to investigate the concrete-covered shafts which were part of the ventilation system for the Here Castle Tunnel. As he climbed down the ladder of one of the shafts, he discovered a metal ledge at a depth of almost six feet below ground. On that ledge was a foam mattress and a sleeping bag. But what really caught Detective Maskery's attention was the metal cable anchored to the wall that stretched over the edge. Detective Maskery had a bad feeling, but as he looked down, he was heartbroken to discover Leslie Whittle's naked body hanging below the ledge. Donald had used the cable to restrain Leslie and prevent her escape. Had he pushed her off the ledge? The alternative scenario was that Leslie had accidentally fallen to her death after Donald abandoned her in the shaft. No matter which theory was correct, Leslie had still died from vagal inhibition, meaning the shock of the fall had caused her heart to stop. Unfortunately, she had not been strangled to death. The subsequent autopsy concluded that Leslie had been alive for at least three days after her abduction, based on the fact that her stomach and intestines were completely empty. Understandably, the poor girl had been too terrified to eat the chicken soup that was found on the ledge next to her sleeping bag. After the horrifying death of Leslie Whittle, the search for the Black Panther became even more frantic. All of a sudden, Donald Nielsen was Britain's most wanted man, 
with more than 800 officers working on the case. But despite all the evidence found at the crime scenes, the police were no closer to catching him. At this point, they needed a miracle, a stroke of good luck, before the Black Panther could set his sights on any more victims. Some months later, in December 1975, that stroke of luck came when the most unexpected thing happened. After a huge struggle, officers Stuart McKenzie and Tony White, who had been out patrolling in Mansfield, brought a man claiming to be John Moxton back to the station. John had been acting suspiciously before taking the officers hostage. Then, fighting for his freedom like a wild animal, almost shooting one of the officers in the head and almost grabbing a large hunting knife from under his coat before bystanders had beaten him down. But when John's fingerprints were taken and subsequently run through the database, the police were absolutely stunned to discover that this man wasn't John Moxton. After all these years, 400 house burglaries, almost 20 sub-post office robberies and a kidnapping, they had finally found and arrested the infamous Black Panther. When Donald Nielsen finally admitted his real identity... Officers began searching his home, where they discovered a large number of guns, other weapons, masks, gloves, and a mountain of evidence linking Donald to the post office murders and the death of Leslie Whittle. The police even learned that even though the Black Panther was, to everyone's surprise, a family man, Donald was really a loner and lived for his military background and carefully planned operations. It also appeared that Donald was quite proud of the name he had been given by the public, as the officers also found a model of a Black Panther in his home. When confronted with all this evidence, including his fingerprints being matched to those found in the drain shaft... Donald confirmed he really was the feared Black Panther and admitted that he had killed Leslie and the sub-postmasters. But arranging a fair trial for Donald Nielsen was not an easy task, considering how famous and hated he had become, especially in the north of England. Nevertheless, he was eventually tried at Oxford Crown Court in June 1976. During his court appearances, Donald's defence attorney, Gilbert Gray, QC, tried to convince the jury that his client may have kidnapped a teenager, but he was not a murderer. After all, Donald had provided Leslie Whittle with chicken soup, spaghetti and meatballs. He had never meant for her to fall to her death. Needless to say, the jury did not buy Donald's explanation, and after just 90 minutes of deliberations, they returned with a unanimous verdict. Guilty. Three weeks later, he was convicted of the murders of two postmasters and the husband of a postmistress. As a result, in July 1976, Donald Nielsen was given five life sentences and a further 61 years in prison. 21 years for kidnapping Leslie Whittle, 10 years for blackmailing her mother, and 30 years for two burglary charges and for possessing the sawn-off shotgun. All the sentences were to run concurrently. Donald was acquitted of the attempted murder charges of Margaret Grayland and PC Tony White, 
and because the security guard, Gerald Smith, had died in hospital over 365 days after the shooting, Donald couldn't be charged with his murder. This rule was later abolished in 1996. In 2008, Donald applied to have his minimum term reverted to 30 years, but Judge Tier of the Superior Court of Justice refused the appeal, saying, quote, This is a case where the gravity of the applicant's offences justifies a whole life order. The manner in which the young girl was killed demonstrates that it involved a substantial degree of premeditation or planning. It also involved the abduction of a young girl. The location and manner of Leslie Whittle's death indicates that she must have been subjected by the applicant to a dreadful and horrific ordeal. Around the same time, Donald Nielsen was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and his condition deteriorated quickly. On the 17th of December 2011, he was transferred to Norwich University Hospital where he died the following day, December the 18th, at 6.40pm. Donald's death was the ultimate end to a very dark chapter in British criminal history. As Detective Ray Wagg, who worked on the Leslie Whittle case, said, Donald was a merciless and determined man who killed anyone who challenged him. If it would not have been for the incredible luck of the two patrolling officers and some help from brave bystanders... Who knows how many more victims the Black Panther would have claimed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you for your kind messages of support, feedback, positive reviews and of course, your patience. I really do appreciate it and I love reading what you have to say. For transcripts, photos, credits and resources relating to today's episode, please visit www.truecrimebritain.com. If you'd like to access things like ad-free, early release and bonus episodes, I'd love you to consider supporting the show by joining me on Patreon, where you could get access to all that and even more rewards from just £1 a month. You can join now by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimebritain or see the episode description. Don't forget, you can also like, follow and or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. There are some big cases coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss out. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube for regular case updates. Just search for True Crime Britain. If you're already supporting me on Patreon, you can find next week's episode already there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and please. Stay safe. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.